Would you please take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel. If you're visiting with us, the black Bible in the chair in front of you, go towards the back where the New Testament begins. Find page 2 because we're going to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew's Gospel chapter 4. We're doing the whole chapter this morning. Matthew chapter 4. Again, page 2 in that black Bible. So I'll read Matthew chapter 4, and then we'll, we'll jump in. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And fasting 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Verse 12, now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that the word that was spoken through Isaiah the prophet may be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Come after me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately leaving the nets, they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the one of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee of their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately, leaving the boat and their father, they followed him. And he was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, lunatics, paralytics, those who were lame. And he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. 
In 2016, a book came out called Truth Proof. The truth that leaves no proof. UK author and researcher Paul Sinclair. He lives in the seaside town of Brindlington on the northeast shore, excuse me, northeast coast of Yorkshire with his wife and family. He'd been investigating strange phenomena in the area since 2002. Coastal area around Brindlington has a deep history of folklore, strange sightings, and mysterious disappearances, and, and Paul's in the middle of it. Truth Proof is a collection of first-hand accounts and recollections of local UFO activity, missing people, alien big cats, missing aircraft, and other anomalous phenomena, even werewolves. Paul is the most thorough investigator who is not content with hearsay or rumors. He studies and researches his subjects to the minutest detail, looking for documented evidence that backs up everything in truth proof. Am I selling you on the book yet? Let me keep going. One more statement. A couple more. For truth proof, Paul has interviewed witnesses to events far stranger than anything reported worldwide. Some are recent, some are historical, but they're always fascinating. Never know you didn't know you're going to get commercial, did you? Truth proof containing evidence of the truth that leaves no proof. Dun, 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 dun. Because that's what people want. They want the truth. Or rather, the proof that something is true. But if something is really true, does it really need to prove itself? It just stands as it is. I mean, you can believe what you want about that chair. If you want it to believe that it's a big bowl of pasta, you're more than happy to believe that. But the fact of the matter is, it's a chair. Now there's evidence as I can show you that it's a chair. Yes, of course I can. But it stands as it is. It's just, it's true. I'm flying in the face of postmoderns who don't like when I say that. Truth attests to itself. It stands on its own. Now, I'm not talking about something existentially. In other words, something becomes true for you. That's existentialism. It becomes your truth, but it's not my truth. I'm not talking about that. Things just are the way they are. Whether postmodernists say otherwise, that's simply, no pun intended, not true. And yet, even in the midst of that, what we see here is Jesus attesting to the fact of who he was or is. He gives proof. As we've been looking at Matthew's gospel, these next past three messages, the, the theme of Matthew was bow down and worship Jesus, the Messiah, King of Israel. Today in chapter four, we see the proof of who he is. I put them in quotations because it's not like Jesus has to prove that. And yet he does. He shows he truly is the Messiah, King, Son of God. And you'll see five different ways he does this. The proof 
of who he is. I'll give you some statements. You know how it goes. Because Jesus identified with sinners by withstanding the temptations of Satan, he proved himself to be the Messiah, King, Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah, King of Israel, who identified with sinners by withstanding the temptations of Satan. He truly is God's Son. He's a light to all, not just to Jews. He called Israel to decisively repent. He called disciples to totally follow him. He taught, he preached, he healed. He's just showing who he was. He truly is Messiah. He truly is God's son. Because remember what the father said back in Matthew chapter three? This is my beloved son in, in whom I'm well pleased. I become pleased with him. And he's gonna show why he's pleased, why the father's pleased with him. How would the father authenticate this baptism of Jesus? His beloved son and Messiah? He would send him into the desert to be tempted by the accuser. You know him well, don't you? It would solidify who Jesus was so that his ministry may begin where he's calling disciples. He's proclaiming, repent. Uh, He's healing people. He's teaching everywhere. And by withstanding the temptations of the devil, He showed himself to be the Messiah, King, Son of God, so that his words and his deeds would take on a whole new meaning. He was not just some guy. He was the real deal. And his temptations that he had to face, it points out what he valued, or rather what he would value in his ministry. Jesus valued the Father and what the Father wanted for him. The Father wanted him to be a light. The Father wanted him to call people to follow him. The Father wanted him to teach, to preach, and to heal. He was about what the Father wanted. That's what he valued. So would he withstand the test? Or would he be a wonder worker? Doing powers to fulfill himself. Like you may see on... Christian television. Does he all, is he all about wowing people? Is he all about establishing himself? No. He won't do any of that. Would he trust the Father's provision to meet his needs? Would he trust the Father's care without trying to force his hand? Would he trust the Father's plan to obtain glory by going to the cross No guts, no glory. So I'll give you, if you want like some uh, title or something like that, five proofs uh, Jesus is who he said, or rather who the Father called him to be. So I have numbers on these, not like last week, right? Number one, see, look, I put a number on that for you. I'm not as dumb as I look. Travis, don't answer that. Jesus withstood Satan. This is the bulk of it. Verse 1 through 11. He withstood the evil one. 
Verses one through 11, starting in verse one. He was led by the Spirit as the Spirit descended upon him as a dove to empower him. So the Spirit led him into the desert to be tested, tempted by the devil. He withstood the evil one. And you're going to notice something right from the get-go here. God's obedient son versus Israel, his disobedient son. It's a little S, right? Yeah. He would repeat Israel's history. Remember the wilderness wandering? Jesus would be confirmed as the Messiah, King, servant, son of God where Israel failed in so many ways Messiah would succeed. Where you have failed in so many ways Messiah has succeeded. Not only is he our savior he is our example. Lessons Israel should have learned. Lessons for us to learn. And the the devil would challenge Jesus to achieve his status through selfish, self-directed, self-focused ways. Notice how it begins. Verse 2, he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, remember the wilderness wandering for 40 years? 40 in the Bible is connected to times of punishment and hardship. So after this long fast, it says, afterward he became hungry. I'm hungry after four hours, let alone 40 days. Some of you are ready to eat now. Don't be thinking about that yet. I'm still preaching. No, no. We'll eat later. So notice verse 3. The tempter, does he not tempt you, came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. This gives you the right, man. These are your prerogatives as the SOG. You're the son of God. What's so bad about turning stones into food so that it would satisfy him? Why is that so bad? If his fast was done, hey, whip up a couple loaves of bread. Whip us up some pancakes, Jesus. Come on. What's wrong with that? Because it would sever his filial relationship with his father since he would end up doubting the father's provision for him. That's why his filial relationship, that family relationship, that fatherly relationship, it would be contrary to the servant-son model seen at the baptism. So, would Jesus humbly trust his father's provision for his needs? Or would he exert his power to meet his own selfish desires? Do you humbly trust your father to meet your needs? Jesus must not use his power for his own self-gratification. If he did things to satisfy his own personal needs, get this, then there'd be no need to take a lowly place as a sinner, and die on the cross for sinners as a sinner. There'd be no need for that. So this temptation, whip us up a couple batches of pancakes, gratify yourself, then what's the point of him going to the cross? 
notice how Jesus responds here in verse 4. It is written, Man will not live on bread alone, bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, because God's word is reliable and unchanging. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative. That's why he does it for each of these three temptations. He quotes scripture. Man should not live on bread alone, but in every word that proceeds, it comes out of the mouth of God. Why does he say this? Because, as has happened in Israel's history, God permitted Israel to hunger and thirst in the desert so that his people would learn that they needed Yahweh God and his word to be sustained just like they needed bread and water. This is what we need, friends. This is what you need. That's why God permits you to hunger and thirst in that desert. So you would learn that you need Him. Instead of using His power like a magic wand, Jesus was called as the Messiah King, Son of God, to be aware of His daily need to do what? Trust the Father's perfect provision. His focus? Seek first God, His kingdom, and His righteousness. These, these are for us to write down. You should trust the Father's perfect provision for you. You should seek first God, His kingdom, and His righteousness. Notice verse 5 and 6. The second temptation took him into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, which I believe this is literal, not a vision. He's way up there. In verse 6, he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Again, these are your prerogatives. Use your power to sustain yourself. Now you use this provision of the Father for a smooth ride, man. So would Jesus trust the Father's care without forcing his hand? And notice what the evil one says. Jump off. God will protect you. Verse 6. He will give his angels charge concerning you. It is written. He quotes from Psalm 91. On hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Take the leap of faith, Jesus. You should jump because the angels, angels, they're there to help you. Show everybody the power of God. If you really trust your father, Jesus, throw yourself down. Uh, he said he'd care for you, which is why you were so stupid as to not make those stones into bread. Well, then trust him, buddy. Do it. You know, the evil one knows the Bible more than all of us put in this room. And he'll use it to make it say or mean something that it does not mean because he hates you and wants to destroy you. Mark my words. Notice Jesus, 
Verse 7, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. No, no, no. No, you've misapplied that verse. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 and he pointed out Israel doubting God's provision of water in Exodus chapter 17. They were testing Yahweh. Is, Is God really among us? So he's saying, jumping doesn't mean I trust him. Jumping means I test him. Look, uh, we don't put demands on God to intervene with miraculous powers to meet our needs. We don't needlessly thrust ourselves into danger in order to compel God to save me. That's trying to manipulate God. No. The call is to trust the Father's perfect care even in bad or hard times. Those prosperity gospel preachers, they'll tell you otherwise. Pooing on them. And notice what he does here, the third temptation, verse 8 and 9. He took him to a very high mountain. Was, was this a vision? Was this really happening? We're not sure, but regardless of what happened, he showed Jesus the glory of the kingdoms of this world. It's all yours if you fall down and worship me. Yield to me a place that belongs only to God, a blatant call to break the first commandment, to worship another God. Remember Israel and that golden calf thing that happened? Remember that? So, would Jesus trust the Father's plan to obtain glory and exaltation by first going to the cross? You see the temptation here. You see what the evil one's trying to do. No guts, no glory, though, Jesus. There be no crown without first the cross. Jesus came to die. Not for people to give him all this glory. You see what I mean? Notice verse 10. Get away, Satan. Leave. Go. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. We don't bow down and worship humans, even angels. And notice how Jesus avoided the pits into which Israel fell. They worshiped that golden calf. And now Jesus would be exalted, but to have all authority given to Jesus, it would call for him to go to the cross in obedience to the Father. That's why we are called first to suffer. Then we will be exalted. Would Jesus trust the Father's plan to obtain glory? Yes, and he would be vindicated and he would be exalted. That's why he would say in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me. He would be exalted, but first was the cross, right? And notice verse 11, the devil left him for another opportune time. He obeyed the Father, displayed himself to be obedient, the obedient Messiah, King, Son of God. Then angels came and ministered to him. What did they do? Did they bring him food? I don't know. Maybe they did, like they did with Elijah. We don't know. 
But whatever happened, whatever took place, Jesus truly is the Messiah, King, Son of God who came to save us from the temptations of the evil one and to show us how to trust our Father in His provision, His care, and plans for us and not resort to selfishness. What a challenge. What a Savior. What a Redeemer. What a Conqueror. And after withstanding these temptations, he began his ministry where he would be the light and darkness. He would, he would give a message to all, calling them to repent. He'd call disciples. Those would be the next things we'll look at. This is what's happening. This was the progression of what's going on. So it leads us to number two. First, he withstood the Satan, the evil one. Second, he shines himself. Or you could put, he is light, if you're taking notes. He's light, or he shines himself. Another proof of who he is. You see that here in verses 12 through 16. He shines himself. Notice this statement that I have. God's kingdom has come in his Messiah, King's Son, and he is a shining light to all the nations, conquering the evil one, and all he's done to destroy us. The new has surely come, so the call, repent. Notice verse 12 and 13. He heard that John had been taken into custody. He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. When John was arrested, Jesus left Judea to begin his ministry in Galilee, and his base of operations, not in Nazareth, that was his hometown, we'll find out why later on, it'd be in Capernaum, which was uh, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, about two miles from the Jordan. And notice what it says, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, verse 14, in order that he may fulfill the word that was spoken through, Isaiah the prophet may be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun, and land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The prophecy is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now in Isaiah's day, Israel was in political darkness. And Matthew relates to the time of Jesus as a time of also they were experiencing spiritual darkness and their need for redemption, the need for Messiah. And think of it, it's amazing. I think, uh, what was it? Kaylin and I were talking about this earlier. And Jesus didn't come into Rome to do his ministry. He didn't come into a, a big Jerusalem to do his ministry. He came to a nobody place, Galilee. Galilee area, it was scorned, especially with its large population of Gentiles. Why did he do that? It perfectly shows that God rejects the proud and receives the most unlikely people to be his own people. It was an unlikely place to give light to those, notice verse 16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. It's 
it's an unlikely place to give light to those who sat in darkness because God doesn't do the things that we expect. He does his work of greatness among the lowly and despise those we least expect. The people in a constant state of darkness, of mind and spirit, bounded by death, they would be able to see light. They would be able to see truth. Jesus would shine the truth on them. Jesus brought the kingdom of the light because he is the light. And with him beginning his ministry in this despised remote area with many Gentiles, you know what this does? Interesting, it foreshadowed the Father's mission where the light of the kingdom would be for the whole world. It's not just for Jews. It was for Gentiles. So even here, once again, Matthew's trying to get the attention of his readers. Yes, it's, it's, this is a message for Jews, his gospel. Yes, my gospel's for Jews, but realize that the message of the kingdom was for all people, not just for Jews. For all the ethnicities, for all people groups, even Qataris, even them, they need the gospel too. And so you see this here. Jesus shines himself in a place where you wouldn't expect it to be shining. So he withstood the, the, the Satan, he, he shines himself. Another proof of who he is. Three, he preached repentance. He preached repentance. Notice verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Same message as John. Repent or change the trajectory of your life because the kingdom of heaven is near. The reality of the last days is now. Repent and trust in the Lord. Repent and trust in Jesus, Messiah, the King. Why didn't you just, just say, hey, guess what, everybody? I'm the Messiah. Why didn't you just do that? Well, because of the connotations involved in saying something like that publicly with Jews and Romans. But he was still calling people to repent and embrace the kingdom. So he withstood the evil one. He shines himself. He preached repentance. Notice a fourth one. He called disciples. Look at verse 18. Walking by the sea, he saw two brothers, Simon. It was called Peter, Andrew, his brother. Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, they weren't just amateurs. They weren't just going fly fishing. You know, hey, let's just go fly fishing. No, they weren't that. These guys were professionals. They were commercial fishermen. I, I have to read this because I don't know anything about fishing like this. A, a net was a circular device, what they had. They weighted it with stones. It was thrown into the water and when it was pulled up, it tightened around the fish. This was their business. And notice Jesus is going to use this as a play on words. Notice verse 19. And he said to them, follow me, literally, come after me. This is not an invitation, friends. This is a command, a demand. Come after me and I will make you fishers of men. And they would literally travel with him, ethically obey him and follow him as a model, which for them led to hardship, 
trials and suffering. And yet they would be used to cast a net to bring souls in. Jesus uses this as a play on words. Now, they had no idea at the time what this really meant or what it really mean to follow Jesus. But they were willing because notice their response here in verse 20. And immediately leaving their nets, they followed him. There's immediate sacrificial obedience to Jesus. They walked away from homes, family, and livelihood to follow Jesus. Jesus who was homeless. Now how did they provide for their families? How did they take care of their families? We're not told those details. Matthew doesn't tell us. Only that they left it all. Uh, Peter says this, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 19, later on, 19 verse 27, says to Jesus, hey, we've left everything, we've to follow you. That's what they did. All that those nets meant to them, they left it to follow Jesus. They promptly and wholeheartedly obeyed Jesus' call to follow You want to know what a kingdom Messiah, kingdom follower or Messiah follower looks like? That's what it looks like. You leave everything. True discipleship or true following Jesus means you make an utter decisive break in your life. It's just not business as usual. Your life changes dramatically when the Messiah King calls you. When it comes to Jesus as the King, He demands your allegiance. Everything. Notice it happens here with the two sons of Zebedee in verse 21 and 22. The same pattern as above. Commercial uh, fishermen fixing their nets John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. And he called them, verse 22, and immediately, leaving the boat and their father, they left their father behind, unlike a would-be disciple later in Matthew's gospel. And this is not just a loss of finances, but also family relationship. A father, that was one of the strongest family ties there in the first century. Soul allegiance to Messiah King. And they followed him. Jesus calls us to immediate, unquestioned, sacrificial discipleship. He absolutely calls all to follow him in repentant faith. You must be willing to risk everything to follow him, even your life, to promptly and wholeheartedly follow Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what we mean when we say you repent and put your trust in Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be his disciple. This is what it means to be, as they say, born again. You will follow Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't responded to the gospel, you need to respond to the gospel. 
You need to repent and put your trust in Jesus, yet realize your life may not get better. It may get worse. But it'll be so worth it. Because you get God. Because the gospel is God. You get him as the gift. He is your treasure. So we see this. Jesus is proving himself. Withstanding the evil one. Shines himself. Praises repentance, right? Calls disciples. And last, number five. He taught, preached, and healed that put all these together because that's what you see in verse 23. Going about all Galilee, teaching, preaching, healing. As a summary of his words and his actions, he taught in the synagogues, preached the gospel of the kingdom, healed every kind of disease and sickness. Notice the active rule of God. The synagogue was a, a gathered place, a place for them to gather and study the Old Testament, specifically the Torah, they would have courts, community courts here. They would punish individuals here, part of the Jewish synagogues. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, God's active rule seen in his coming Messiah and his king. And when he was healing, these are acts of mercy to show God's active rule and power over the lostness in this world. Physical needs were being met, spiritual needs were being met. He healed people even though they did not repent. He gave himself to the people to show this is what it would be like to be in God's kingdom. Because the kingdom and the Messiah king had come, Satan worked over time to defeat Jesus. That's why you see so many instances here in the gospels of people being demonized, oppressed by demons, and so many things going on. Why? Because Satan was working over time because the Son of God had come. They didn't want him doing these things. But God brought his kingdom in association with his Messiah's son. And you see Jesus defeating sickness and demons. It showed that God's kingdom overcomes the evil in this world. Not a political party. Not a political agenda. Look, the only thing that's ever going to take place where people will come to a place where they see that abortion is wrong is when they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because they just don't see it. They just see it's just a blob of skin. But once you, once you help them to see they're made in the image of God and they should be condemned and yet God in his grace saves us, they will see that that truly is a person, Right? It's about the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. They need the gospel. They need Christ. That's what's so much more important. And yet perish the thought of what they do to those babies. Christ, Christ alone and his kingdom. There won't be abortions in Christ's kingdom, will there? You guys all should be saying amen to that. Verse 24 and the news about him went out into all Syria. They brought him all ill, various diseases and pains. His reputation was spreading everywhere. Ills he was healing, diseases, pains, people tormented by demons, or, or we'll call them being demonized. You see that word epileptics, it's actually, actually the word means moon stricken. 
lunatics is what the word means. Those people who are lame, all kinds of them, he was healing them. And notice verse 25 where we end, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea. Notice the word follow. You'll see this phrase, the crowds or the multitudes follow Jesus. You'll see that. But don't, don't be deceived by it. The, the crowds or the multitudes, they're kind of in the middle because people are fickle, right? Like they're not on the side of the disciples who sold everything to follow Jesus, but they're not on the side of the religious leaders who were hostile to Jesus. So the, 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 the crowds, the multitudes are kind of in the middle. But eventually the religious leaders would sway them so that eventually they would assent to Jesus' death. So here you see chapter four. Jesus is showing himself. He is the Messiah, King, Son of God. Here he is. Jesus as the Messiah, King, Son of God. He's a light to all, called Israel to repent, calls disciples to follow him. He's teaching, preaching, healing everybody. Because Jesus identified with sinners, with us, by withstanding the temptations of Satan, he proved himself to be the Messiah, King, Son of God. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you withstood the evil one. You save us from his deceptions and you are an example of how we can deal with his deceptions. You are a light to us. You call us to repent and to follow you. And we see here a glimpse of what the kingdom and the future will be like. And yet the kingdom is here and now because you save sinners. You transform people from darkness to light. Give us your grace to be a light to this community. Give us your grace to display kingdom living amongst each other. Give us your grace to withstand the temptations of the evil one. Take some time, if you would, Let your mind ponder and think. Let your mind dwell on these things that we've seen here in Matthew chapter 4. And as we normally do, some moments of silence, we'll we'll worship in our giving, we'll sing songs together and pray, then we'll go chow down some food together and go about your day. But, But at this time, Just a moment, about a minute. Let the words sink deep into your soul and ponder what we've seen. Jesus, our Messiah, King, Son of God.